are Seraphim. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Generation Space podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dylan Taylor. Dylan is a global business leader and philanthropist. He's an active pioneer in the space exploration industry and is CEO, investor, commercial astronaut thought leader, and futurist. Currently, Dylan serves as chairman and CEO of Voyager Space, a multinational space exploration firm that acquires and integrates leading space exploration enterprises globally. And we're excited to say he's a member of the Seraphim portfolio. Hi, Dylan. Hello, Leah. How are you? Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm also pleased to welcome back Mark. And Mark is CEO of Seraphim Space. You already know he's a specialist space tech investor. Hi there. Go on. Right. Let's get straight to it. Dylan, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you first got into space? Well, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. And of course, thank very highly of uh, Seraphim and the entire team and all you're doing for the industry. So an honor to be part of this podcast. My interest in space actually started at a very young age, like literally first memory, you know, three, four, five years old, something like that. Believe it or not, it was Star Trek, (laughs) which sort of fascinated me. Uh, But maybe for reasons different than you might expect, I was mesmerized with sort of the, the social transformation that Star Trek exemplified, kind of post scarcity world, you know, highly diverse, everyone's getting along. It's kind of this land uh, of wonderment and exploration. I was just fascinated by that. I thought to myself, why can't we live that way? Why doesn't that match the everyday reality that I'm experiencing? So that was really my where my interest started. And then I entered the business world, like a lot of people maybe, very type A, super ambitious, wanted to rule the world and, and all that sort of thing. And my claim to fame, if, if I had one, was uh, running large public companies. That was an expertise that I developed and uh, I was in several industries, electronics, finance, banking, real estate. Maybe like a lot of people kind of end up ended up in a place where I had everything I wanted or, or thought I was set out to achieve but wasn't feeling particularly fulfilled or purposeful in that context was reflecting on my true passion, which of course had always been space. And that's when I pivoted to really focus on space as my calling. So that's a little bit about my journey. That sounds amazing. I think that's everyone's dream to work in their passions. What about the history of Voyager, the company? How did you, can you tell us a little bit more about how that began? So the way my approach has been with space, and it's really how I got involved as an early stage investor initially, is, as I mentioned earlier, I believe in the power of space to transform. And so if you believe that, it's all about getting people out there. So the way my brain works is, if that's the goal, what are the constraints? You know, where is the industry blocked? And initially, going back 10, 12, 15 years, it was really early stage capital. That's where the industry was blocked. A lot of VCs and and institutional investors like Seraphim didn't exist at the time. And a lot of the industry was sort of lamenting the fact that this was a constraint. And I thought, well, that's not going to materialize until you capitalize early stage companies and mature them to the stage where they're investable. And so I thought, the industry needs this, I'll focus on that particular part of the capital stack. And I put some of my own capital to work. Fast forward, the industry's matured. Of course, now it is investable. Now institutional investors are now keen to invest. We have public companies and exits and things of that nature. So probably five, six years ago, I thought about, well, what's next for the industry? Where's the next step? Where is the industry blocked, so to speak? And my reflection was the industry wasn't scaling particularly well. And part of that was a lot of the founder-led companies, brilliant people, 
technically geniuses, but maybe not experienced at running businesses uh, at scale. And typical aggregators in industries, let's say private equity or strategic investors, aren't particularly well-suited for space, in my view, because, for example, a lot of the founders don't want to sell to a strategic because that's not a win for them, right? They, they want their independence. They want their entrepreneurialism. And then private equity, which I respect a great deal, you know, typically they think about it in terms of aggregating market share. And in my view, the way you create value in space is by aggregating capability, which is a slightly different approach. So really requires an operator to think through that. So the notion of Voyager was, can you assemble capability with highly innovative companies and build a larger operating platform, similar to like a Danaher, if you're familiar with that, or a Heiko, and create something that's capable of doing large-scale infrastructure projects in space. Because heretofore, the only companies capable of that are large aerospace primes. And as much as we all affectionately love the aerospace primes, they're perhaps not as entrepreneurial or innovative or creative as they could be. So that was the notion. Can you be the best of both worlds? Can you be entrepreneurial, flexible, adaptable, but yet operate at scale and pull off these large infrastructure projects? And that was really the model was validated when we won one of the contracts to build uh, the replacement to the International Space Station. That sort of sealed the, the fact that this was the right model for the industry. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, what about Voyager's mission now? Yeah, so we want to be a, a few things. I mean, we're super ESG focused, which I know Seraphim is. We're very aligned on that. You know, I'm at the stage of my career where I want to win, in quotes, but I want to win the right way. And I want to provide leadership to the industry in, in ways that I think are important. Certainly diversity and inclusion. I point out that aerospace and defense is probably second only to Wall Street as being like the least diverse industry that I'm aware of. So we've got a lot of work to do. So that's an area, making sure that we're addressing some of the large global challenges we have, including mass migration, mainly due to climate change, but other factors, income inequality, food security, things like this. So that's really, really important to us that we're having an impact on those uh, topics. But ultimately, as I, as I said at the very beginning, we're all about getting more humans to space and having people sort of have this transformation, which I can attest to because I've had the privilege of being in space, but getting more people up there. Because th to me, the allure of opening up the high frontier, as they say, is to enable the ability for humanity to sort of take that next step, reimagine how we can be better, uh, treat each other better, not only have the technological revolution that comes with it, but the social revolution, hopefully, that uh, makes us all treat each other better. Can you give everyone a bit of an understanding of scale of your organization today? How many employees do you have? Where are your offices? How much funding have you raised to date? Yeah, so we are 750 people, I believe. We just closed on our seventh acquisition about two and a half, three weeks ago. So yeah, I think we're we're roughly in the mid 700s. That's going to change a little bit because we're going to be consolidating some functions, but roughly that's the size. We've raised several hundred million dollars to date. We haven't announced exactly the amount there, so I'll be a little bit vague there, but several hundred million dollars. And we're very proud to, of course, have Seraphim as an investor. Our main facilities, our headquarters are in Denver, Colorado, in the US. We have major facilities in Houston, Washington, DC, San Diego, Cleveland, and uh, Reno, Nevada. Those are where our main facilities are. We have a satellite office in Italy. 
we have an office in Abu Dhabi, and we're opening up a uh, satellite office in Luxembourg and also Toronto, Canada. Wow, thank you. You touched a little bit earlier on Voyager's mission, but can you tell everyone a little bit more about what, what Voyager is doing that's so important and how does it support the new space economy? So at the last 10 years of the industry, has been about launch and getting the ability to put a mass in orbit. And I think the industry has done a very good job of that in terms of reliable, reusable, inexpensive, relatively inexpensive launch. The next 10 years, in my view, our view, is going to be about destinations. Like, where are you going? What are you doing? And obviously, the International Space Station, which in my view is one of the best things humans have ever done, is aging, is planned to be deorbited around 2030, perhaps a little bit earlier, depending on how uh, the maintenance plans go. So we need a replacement to that. And so Voyager, along with a couple other companies, have been awarded contracts with NASA to uh, build replacements. Ours is called Starlab. We're really leaning heavily into the research component of um, microgravity. That's why we call it Starlab. And uh, as you may know, there are many, many things you can do on orbit that um, can benefit Earth, including biopharma drug development, uh, space manufacturing, and, and other technologies. And um, you know, part of the narrative with space is it's a distraction, it's billionaires' boys club, it's escape from Earth. You know these kinds of things. And I understand all those arguments, and I'm sympathetic to the to the precept that underlies it, but in my view, nothing could be further from the truth, and that is space can benefit Earth directly, not to mention the fact that a lot of our climate data and a lot of our GPS constellation and all that are enabled by space-based assets, of course. So we're really focused on building destinations in space, building infrastructure in space that allows us to enable technologies that benefit Earth. So we're completing that whole life cycle or value chain, if you were, so that people understand the power of space to transform, not only let's say socially and intellectually, but also technologically. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you, Dylan. Michael, go over to you. What made Voyager stand out to you from the investor perspective? Well, that's an easy one. Um, Dylan is uh, is the only CEO within our entire portfolio that is so committed to space that he's actually been into space. And uh, typically, as humble as, uh, as, as Dylan is, he didn't really go on to explain his own space experience. So I'll do that on his behalf. He's one of the uh, first few passengers to go on a Blue Origin launch into space in December 2021. One of only a few people in the world to have actually um, seen our planet from space. We're delighted to uh, to have backed him in, in, in Voyager. Now, Voyager is a, is a really different business to any of the other companies. In fact, any of the hundred other companies within our broader portfolio. And why they're different is that they're a business that is growing by acquisition. So Dylan talked about making seven acquisitions. And this is a business that um, effectively acquires businesses that already exist. They're trading, they're profitable, they are growing, and then brings them together to uh, to form a uh, an operating company, in this case, focused on being a space prime and focused on building into the space station market. This is a business that can grow in a different way to any of our other portfolio companies. So as and when Voyager requires robotic capability, Dylan and the team will go and scour all of the robotics companies, identify one that's uh, fit for purpose, and then acquire that, and then rapidly bring that business into space heritage. So we think that um, they're, they're in a, a market on their own in terms of taking this approach to, uh, to growing, 
and we think it's uh, it is going to enable them to be able to grow very very quickly. But also, it enables them to grow in a much more sort of risk-adjusted way because each of the underlying operating companies that they've acquired and, and bring together, they still operate and sell to a very diverse range of customers. So this is an organisation that's not reliant on big investments and uh, government contracts from NASA and the European Space Agency. They're not exclusively reliant on that. They've got other sources of diverse income. So for us, this was a, a much lower risk way of playing the, the space station market, the space infrastructure market, and really to draw on the points that Dylan said, this infrastructure is also all about climate and sustainability. And we'll come on and talk about some of these things, I'm sure, uh, during our discussion today. But the type of things that Dylan and uh, his company are going to be doing are really impactful around climate and sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the market size, Dylan? Um, help us understand the level of revenues that you expect to achieve in the next five years. Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, space is a multi-billion dollar market today. I think I've heard Mark say this, and I agree wholeheartedly, that there's a trillion dollar market opportunity for the, the greater space ecosystem. So I think for a company like ours, that would be, let's call it a, at least initially a mini prime, someone who can compete, not for everything that primes do, but for a, a big chunk of some of the infrastructure projects. If we were to get a reasonable market share on that, I think we could build easily a two, three, four billion dollar revenue company, which hopefully would imply an enterprise value of 10 plus billion dollars. I think that's plausible. Now, if we get there three to five years, I would be very pleased with that. But I think realistically, we probably need more like seven, eight years to achieve that level of scale. But we're growing, as Mark said, extremely rapidly and not only acquiring companies, as Mark said, but we're the benefit of, of doing things the way we're doing it and bringing these companies together is we're actually growing quite rapidly organically as well. So year over year in 2022 versus 2021, organically, we grew at 30%. So that's not even counting the, the acquisitions coming into the portfolio, which again, I think validates the model. This year will be hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. You know, So we're probably between 140 and 200, somewhere in that range, depending on uh, contracts breaking our way. And then put on top of that sort of a 30%-ish growth rate and hopefully some additional acquisitions. I, I think we've got a pretty clear path to $500 million, a billion dollars of revenue in the medium term, let's call it. And of course, that assumes uh, healthy capital markets. It assumes a healthy industry, but we're, we're very pleased with the progress we've made so far. Mark, when you were looking at the market, did you identify any potential competitors to Voyager? Yeah, so Axiom is the, uh, is the company that is held out uh, mostly um, as, a, as a competitor against uh, Voyager. Sierra Space, of course. But then, as, uh, as, as Dylan has painted out the picture, that what they're trying to do is build a new space prime. So uh, all of the big primes that we all know are also considered to be competitors to this business. Dylan, how do you think uh, Voyager will win out against, against these potential competitors? Perhaps it's a bit Pollyannish, but I really don't think of it that way. First of all, I'm rooting for everybody. Because again, my, my ethos is I want to get the industry going forward and I want get, to get humans out there. I don't think it's a winner-take-all market. I think we'll have multiple space stations. We'll have multiple primes. We'll have multiple innovative platforms like ours. I think there's plenty to go around. So I, I, I'm definitely an abundance thinker. You know, that being said, I, I think we're focused on some things that might be unique. 
So for example, our space station, we haven't picked our orbit yet and uh, we can calibrate that orbit, I think for optimum scientific value. Other players in this market are, in the case of Axiom, they're, they're sort of committed to the ISS orbit as an example. So I think that's a differentiator. What we're designing to a star lab, which is maximizing scientific research, I think is a bit differentiated from some of the other models as well. We're also very, very focused on technology development. So I don't know that the listeners will remember the old Bell Labs, which was sort of a legendary innovation center, I guess probably in the early 80s. I don't remember exactly the time frame. And obviously we're not Bell Labs, but we like the idea of sort of having an innovation center that's developing IP and technology. We actually acquire IP and technology. And so we have some technologies, uh, including water extraction from moon regolith, a coatings technology, which mitigates dust on the moon, electropermanent magnet technology, which allows you to sort of grapple satellites in orbit, and other technology, laser comm technology, other technologies that I think are going to, in many ways, revolutionize subsystems in space. And so we want to continue to push the industry forward on uh, technology development. And again, I think this is an area where the primes could play a role here, but aren't necessarily focused on it because they're minting money, if you will, in other ways. So it's not particularly a priority for them. So I think we can differentiate ourselves on technology development as well. And then hopefully culturally, you know, part of the vision with Voyager is if we build the right platform, the best and brightest will want to work for a company like this. And that's really been validated. If you look at the quality of the people we brought in, I think many people would agree it's some of the best and brightest in the industry. So hopefully we can differentiate around talent, which, you know, at the end of the day, whoever has the best people has the best company. I mean, it, it is that simple or that hard, depending on how you look at it. So we're very people focused as well. Dylan, let me just uh, come in there and just draw out something that you just said there for uh, the audience. I imagine that most of the people who are, who are listening to this podcast don't know what lunar regolith is. Can you explain what that is and, uh, and, and why we should be excited about it? So obviously when you go camping uh, or caravanning, as we might say in the UK, you're not going to bring your entire house with you. You're not going to bring your kitchen. You're not going to bring all your water necessarily. You might bring a water filter. So similarly, when we go deeper into space, we want to utilize the resources in situ. The moon has lots of resources. It has water at the polar caps, we believe, or have validated. But also the moon's soil, which they call moon regolith, which is a little bit deeper than just the, the thin veneer around the moon. But the actual moon soil is very rich in silicon oxide, silicate, as they say. And obviously, if you mine, in quotes, silicon oxide, you can create water. So that's technology that we have developed and that we have patented. We think it's pretty revolutionary. So obviously, once you have water on the moon, it's not only for human consumption and human habitat, but you can make theoretically rocket fuel, right, from, from water and other resources that might be important. With moon regolith, you can also potentially make habitat, right? You can make the equivalent, let's say, cinder blocks, if you will. So there's a lot of different resources on the moon that, that could be very valuable to creating infrastructure on the moon. And then two resources we might want to bring back from the moon, rare earth minerals, which are pretty abundant on the moon, it would appear could be something that would be economical to mine and bring back. And then one that I'm super interested in is helium-3. So if you believe that nuclear fusion is conceivable, right? It's always, the joke is it's always 10 years away, but 
It might actually be 10 years away now. We need more helium-3 to enable that technology. We're actually running out of helium here on Earth. Just to give you a sense, about a coffee cup full of helium-3 could power a city the size of London for about two years, I believe, if nuclear fusion is what they say it is. So we don't need a lot of it, but I find that fascinating as well. That's fascinating. Thank you for explaining that to everyone, Dylan. What would you say are Voyager's biggest achievements to date? What are you personally most proud of? I think winning the CLD contract from NASA to build the replacement to the International Space Station, I think was a huge win, obviously. I think the quality of our team. So if I just look at my executive team and my direct reports, I think they're some of the best and brightest in the industry. You know, legendary people like Jeff Mamber and Clay Mowry and Abby Dickus and Matt Kuda, Tom Ayers. You know, these are people who are, you know, legendary in their different functional areas. We recently hired Tim Copra to lead our Nanorax operating subsidiary. Tim's very well known, former NASA astronaut. I think the team and I think the the contract would be two examples. And then hopefully, you know, just demonstrating, as I said earlier, doing things hopefully the right way. We have almost, I think Seraphim's the only other company I'm aware of focused on this. We're one director away from having a majority female board, as an example. I think that's fantastic. And by the way, our I would put our board maybe only second to Seraphim in the industry in terms of quality. Uh, it's a spectacular board. So this notion that you can't have excellence and diversity, I, I just reject that. And they're on that. We've got three quarters of our board are uh, female. We're really focused. And they're all stars, right? I mean, that's the point. So I, I'm excited about that. I'm honored to lead this company. It's a joy every day, as you said earlier, I wake up and I'm living my dreams. I, I'm uh, very, very, very happy with where we are. And we have a lot of work to do. Don't get me wrong. We, we, we haven't achieved anything really in the true sense of the word. I mean, we do have hardware in orbit, but until we have a station or something at scale, uh, we're not going to rest. And even when we have that, we won't rest. Thank you. Really inspiring philosophy for our listeners there. How would, do you define success for yourself and for Voyager? You know, this notion of doing things the right way, what does that mean? I think a stewardship approach to the industry, you know, what are my responsibilities to the industry, to my colleagues, to society? You know, I used to believe for years and years, I, I went to business school at the University of Chicago, which you may know, lots of Nobel Prizes. Milton Friedman was sort of a legend there, highly libertarian sort of perspective. And for years, I thought the, the business of business is business, right? That's what you focus on. I don't believe that any longer. What I believe is that we all have responsibilities to each other and that businesses have a responsibility to society. We should be thinking about the long term and what our impacts are to the world, you know, to our fellow humans and things like that. So I think demonstrating, you know, businesses in some ways are some of the more powerful institutions we have in the world, right? I mean, if you have it, and I've run large multinational companies, when you are running a large multinational company, you're operating a platform that in some cases is, is like a nation state almost. And your ability to impact change in different places sort of immediately is, is pretty astonishing. So taking that power, if you will, or that capability and, and using it not only to have a good business, but to make the world a better place, I think demonstrating that I think is, is something that's really important to me. Hopefully Voyager has demonstrated that to a certain extent and hopefully will continue to demonstrate that. So just to build on that, Dylan, uh, really just talking to our own investment process as we were investing into your organization, 
you can see that we very much take an ESG approach to really fundamentally understanding the business, all aspects of um, impact that the business is going to make. And in particular, um, from our perspective, because space is uh, inherently dual use, we're very focused around the different use cases for the different technologies of the businesses that we invest into. So we, we really go into a huge amount of depth when we're investing into businesses to understand the extent and scope of the technologies that they invest into. Voyager was a particularly challenging case because you cover so many different areas that we had a lot of stones to, to, to turn over to get ourselves comfortable that this as a business fitted all of our dual use and ESG requirements, but it absolutely passed with flying colors. But it's a really big focus for investors now. Dylan, have you found, as you've been raising money from other investors, that this is um, on the top of their focus? Is there a trend that you're seeing with the investors that you're working with? Mark, we, you know, we've known each other for quite some time. I, I was incredibly impressed with the authenticity that you guys bring to the table. A lot of investors talk about it. Hey, this is a priority. It's important to us, but they don't necessarily demonstrate that in terms of the questions they're asking and the diligence and and the follow-through they have after making an investment, how can we help in these areas? So I would say it's becoming more prevalent, but I think you are clearly differentiated in this regard, and I commend you on it because I think it's really important. I don't think our industry is particularly great at this, as I said earlier, and I think we have a lot of a lot of work to do. And so with your leadership and, and hopefully the leadership of other investors, we can make a, make a difference in this regard. So yeah, I think it's a trend, but I think a lot of people aren't as authentic on the subject as, as I would like them to be, I would say, to be fair. Dylan, what are the exciting milestones coming up next for Voyager? Well, we have a design review with NASA this summer on our Star Lab. That'll be an important milestone. We are, and I'm speaking generally here, I'm not speaking specifically, we're on a public company glide path, if I can use that term, and making sure we position ourselves to enter the public markets um, the old-fashioned way, <laughs> which is, you know, it's funny to say it's the old-fashioned way, but that's to do a proper S-1 filing and, and kind of go through a traditional underwriting process as opposed to, let's say, a SPAC approach, which has become a bit more fashionable or was fashionable until recently. Uh, so I think that's a key milestone. I would hope that would happen in the next you know, two years or less, hopefully much less. Continuing to scale our team will probably likely make a couple, few more acquisitions over time. We have some large-scale infrastructure projects that we're focused on in addition to the space station. A lot of it has to do with cis-lunar infrastructure and also orbital servicing. So those are two other areas that we're hoping to have some large milestones in terms of contract wins or technology demonstration as well. So th those are some of the key things. Thank you. And what about profits, Dylan? When do you see Voyager potentially going into, into profit? Yeah. Well, as Mark said earlier, we're very fortunate in that our base operating business is not only profitable, but cash flow positive, which by the way, there is a difference. You know, Mark's sophisticated and you are as well, Leah. So you know this, most people don't. You can have positive EBITDA and not generate any operating cash flow because your, your CapEx is so high in order to generate that EBITDA. So we're very focused on positive operating cash flow, which we think is the right metric long-term. Now, with the holding company infrastructure, uh, that drives, you know, our profitability down a bit because we're we're building this company to scale and carry with it a lot more revenue over time. But that's something we control, obviously, in terms of what amount of infrastructure spend we want to engage in at the holding company level. So I would say 
we're probably not going to focus on profitability per se at the general Voyager level, probably for another year or two, because we're still scaling the company. But what we look to is, is the underlying operating business not only profitable, but cash flow positive. And in that case, it is. And the acquisitions we bring in are incrementally so. And we're getting good operating leverage as we scale the company. So I'm very comfortable with how it's all coming together. And I think it will be a well-received public company story when we enter the public markets and are underwritten because it'll show underlying profitability, underlying gross margin, but also a very high growth rate. And typically, it's hard to have all three of those things. Exciting stuff. Thank you. How can our listeners support Voyager on the mission? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. I mean, certainly social media would be one way to engage. We have a company store. So if you want to fly the flag, so to speak, and wear the hat, wear the t-shirt, we would welcome that. But I think just, you know, talking about the company and what we're trying to achieve so that people understand that, yes, we're an innovative company. Yes, we're trying to push the industry forward, but we're trying to do it in a responsible way. Because, you know, frankly, not every company in the industry is focused on that. So I think if you believe that that's a good thing that, and that we're on the right track there, uh, tell people about it. Tell people that we're unique. I'd love to hear from people. I'm, I'm very accessible, very happy to engage with people if they have questions or you know, want to understand deeper what we're up to. We're always looking for talented people. So if anyone, unless you work for Seraphim, because we're not going to poach <laughs> any of the Seraphim people. So Seraphim people are off limits, but and maybe other Seraphim portfolio companies, but anyone else who is looking for employment, please reach out because we're always looking for great people. Awesome. Thank you. I read on your website that you said you're empowering everyday people to be part of the epic space journey, which I, I really like that. And I just wondered if you would like to explain that a bit more as there'll be a lot of everyday people listening. You know, we're trying to take people on that journey that space is this tool for transformation. It's like I said at the beginning. It's a way for us, humanity, to, to imagine, you know, a blank canvas that we can innovate on and, and be humanity 2.0, if you will. So we want to inspire people for that. We want to inspire people to fields of STEM education, employment in the industry, and get people excited about what we're doing and bring people along in that journey. And again, I think to me, the choices at space or earth right? They're not mutually exclusive. And I think space benefits Earth. And we want to continue to demonstrate that and get people excited about that. So that's that's really what we mean by bringing people on the journey. And I just wanted to sort of take a bit of a step back, really, and, um, and really just give a different perspective on this as to really where Voyager fits in. Voyager, we consider to be sort of in phase two of the new space market development. So phase one, of the new space market is this build out of the digital infrastructure. Thousands of satellites looking down at planet Earth, gathering data and communications about every aspect of our planet that we can use to monitor, use resources more efficiently, identify and audit bad actors. And that's a trillion dollar market industry that's now heavily underway. Now, phase two is the build out of heavy infrastructure. And by this, I mean things like data centers, solar farms, manufacturing in space, so lifting dirty industries from our planet that pollute our planet and taking them into space. For us, this is very much where Voyager fits in. It's a platform in space, space infrastructure. 
So this is one of the first positions that we've taken in this uh, next transformative stage of the commercialization of space. But really, of, of all of the aspects of space, we believe that this has the highest benefit to humanity. They're going to be addressing some of the biggest challenges that we face on the planet and addressing some of the, some of the problems that we face around climate and sustainability. So this phase two, the build out of this infrastructure is going to be critical to the long-term health of planet Earth. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. What a great way to end up. Really enjoyed speaking to you, Dylan. I'm sure everyone's fascinated by your story. So thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great being on. Thank you. We are Seraphim.